Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we know that your Son, our Savior, our elder brother, the one who is worthy of all praise, he is the only rock of salvation. He is the only one in whom we can find hope from the impending doom of our sin. And Father, we thank You that He suffered for us. He took upon Himself what we deserve. And so, Lord, as we recount today the words of Your servant, the prophet Zephaniah, as he speaks of the terrors of Your judgment on the nations, Father, may we recognize that this is what You did to Christ on our behalf, that He endured our wrath, or the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that only You can exact in perfect justice. He endured this so that we would never know the true judgment of our sins. So, Father, may we stand in awe, may we marvel at Your greatness and Your power, and may we rejoice today That even in the midst of such terrifying language, you still provide hope. You provided hope when Zephaniah spoke. You provided hope when your son came to earth. And you continue to provide hope that all who turn to Christ, all who look to him, he will save to the uttermost. So, Father, work in our hearts today. May we come away in awe of what you've done, in a full recognition of the consequence of sin. May we hate it more. And Father, may we glory in our Redeemer this morning. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. We're continuing our look at the, prophet of Ze- at the prophet Zephaniah and his prophecy as we see him as a prophet of both wrath and rejoicing. A prophet of wrath and rejoicing. Now we have, as we began looking at this and began in Zephaniah chapter 1, we saw how God responds to idolatry, how he brings about Judgment by sweeping away the idols that we tend to make. He takes those things that we trust in and takes them away from us, pulls them away from us, shows us the emptiness and the vanity of those idols. And then we saw how he judges his people in the day of the Lord that is promised as his own people, those who were meant to be focused and looking to Yahweh alone were worshiping other idols, and so he fully and completely describes the judgment that they deserve. And then we saw he calls his people to return to the Lord, to seek him, to repent in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we looked at that last week. And now what our response should be to the wrath of God is seen in those three verses. And now Zephaniah comes 
And he tells us of the judgment that God is going to bring upon the nations. Now again, it's interesting to see how Zephaniah's prophecy works out according to the pattern of God's own word. God tells us that judgment begins with his own people in the household of God. And so he speaks of the judgment that God will give to Israel, but then now he steps out and he says, but God is not a God so that he does not hear, he does not see the taunts of the nations, the way in which the nations have abused God's own people. And so Zephaniah describes the nations here and their judgment. And so there are several things I want us to go through and look at here. I want us to see who these nations are that are judged. I want to see the terrors that these nations are going to face. I want us to see what causes God to act in this way. And then I want us to finish by seeing how Yahweh Himself, our Lord, vindicates Himself through this judgment. So look with me in Zephaniah chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading in verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherahites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Then you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revelings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herd shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. 
I want us to first see the nations that Zephaniah speaks of, the nations that the word of the Lord comes against in judgment. And the first nation we see is the Philistines. We see this in verses 4 through 7 as he cries out to Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. These are all uh, cities known for the Philistine um, empire, the Philistine country. It's interesting that he mentions four of the five that are most well-known among the Philistines. The other one that is not mentioned here is the city of Gath. And of course, uh, Goliath, that it, we think of him in regards to the city of Gath. And this may be an indication that that city had been um, conquered or destroyed by this time. The Philistines were a notoriously troublesome nation for Israel. And they're particularly seen as a thorn in Israel's side during the reign of both Saul and David and really beginning when Samuel judged the nation. In fact, what we find and what we see with all of these nations, except perhaps for Moab and Ammon, is that there is a failure in Israel in truly rooting out or getting rid of the nations that inhabited the land that God had given to them. And the Philistines are the prime example of that. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, we see that the Philistines were subdued. They did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the reason was not because Israel had some military superiority or some special strategy that they used, but it was because the hand of the Lord was against them. All the days of Samuel, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. This nation did much in taunting Israel and particularly taunting their God. We looked at this a little bit last week when we saw the description of, um, or in a, a, a couple weeks ago, where we saw the description of the priests that jump over the threshold, that being a reference to the priests of Dagon, a Philistine god. And in particular, what the Philistines did is they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple to Dagon in a taunt saying, Dagon is greater than Yahweh. Of course, we know the story that the next morning they came in and, and their great idol, their great statue to Dagon was fallen down on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. And then they, they propped their God back up again and they came in the next day and not only was the idol fallen down before the Ark, but its head and its hands had been chopped off and laid at the threshold of the door. They persisted to challenge Israel throughout the time of David and Saul. If we remember the great story, of the great one of the most well-known stories that you heard in Sunday school of that in David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, a giant of Gath. And we see him being one. They often defied the Lord and they defied His people. In these four verses, Zephaniah describes the judgment that God will bring upon this nation. God will once again move against them. He'll remove them from the land that rightly belongs to Judah. No matter how strong or how powerful this nation may seem, God will take them out. 
Those who rise up against the Lord, those who raise their fists and their hands against His people, God will judge. They will not stand on the day of His judgment. And it is God who speaks these words. Look in verse 5. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. That's a strong statement. When God decrees, when God speaks, things happen. It is inevitable. This world was brought about by God's what? Word. He spoke and universes came spinning into existence. And so when he speaks against nations, it is a fearful thing. It is a sure thing. He will judge. We see the second group, the second nations that God speaks against are Moab and Ammon. These nations are related to Israel. They're descended from the line of Abraham's nephew, Lot. They possess the land east of the Jordan River and south of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites in particular lived in an elevated hill country, sort of overlooking the area that Israel possessed. In fact, when Moses was taken up to see the promised land that he was not going to be able to enter, he went into the hills of Moab and he looked out over this land. Now, as Israel was entering the land, as they were going into the promised land, there was a a command from God that that they were not to harass or contend with Moab. He is not going to give their land to Israel as a possession because he's remembering the promises he made to Lot. And so there's this this reality that Moab and Ammon were to exist and, and coexist in peace with Israel. But both nations were responsible to keep the peace. Israel was not to go after them. Moab was also not to rise up against that which God had given to his people. But God does make it abundantly clear that they are his enemies. We see here again the the message to Ammon to not harass them or contend with them. But at the end of Deuteronomy, we find that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation of them. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? They did not bless His people. They did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And And then we think of this, they hired against them Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pether of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Remember the story. The, the king of Moab comes and he's concerned with this, this huge movement of likely a million people coming through their area. And so he reaches out to this false prophet, to Balaam. And Balaam goes to curse Israel. And every time he opens his mouth to curse them, instead of the curse coming out, he blesses them. And so what we see is instead the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh, your God, loved you. And so he says as a result of their turning away from Israel, they're not to seek the peace and the prosperity of these nations all your days forever. 
Moab and Ammon would trouble Israel from the time of the conquest through to the ministry of Zephaniah. And that is why Zephaniah speaks of them taunting, reveling against his people. We see that in verse 8. We see that they, in their pride, in verse 10, taunt and boast against the people of the Lord of hosts. So the Philistines, Moab and Ammon. Thirdly, Egypt. The Egyptians are mentioned here, and we see this. You think, I didn't see Egypt here. This is the, likely a reference to Egypt in reference to the Cushites in verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. This third group refers to an area south of Egypt that would today likely encompass both Ethiopia and parts of Sudan. So he's referring to African nations. And there we know in the history of Egypt, there was a time where there was a Cushite ruler, a Cushite pharaoh that ruled over the Egyptian lands. Now, the description of Cush, like why didn't he just say Egypt? It likely serves two purposes. The first thing it sees is probably the final act of God's vengeance against one of Israel's oldest enemies. We know the story. Joseph takes his brothers and the nation of Israel into Egypt and they are blessed. He's given a place of prominence and and there is a blessing that the Egyptians have upon Israel. But soon a Pharaoh rises that does not know Joseph. And so they take this nation and instead of blessing them, they enslave them. And they, we, we know the back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses and the plagues that come upon Egypt. And, and finally he releases them. But even in that moment when he releases them, he gathers his army and musters his soldiers and he chases after them. And so God speaks of these nations, the Cushites representing this entire Egyptian area as being slain by his sword. We also see throughout the history of Israel, particularly as we come to the later kings of Israel, that Egypt was a stumbling block to true faith in God alone. Many times Israel would look to form alliances with Egypt for the sake of fighting foreign nations. And there are prophets who specifically call out Egypt and call out Israel and say, don't trust in the Egyptians. They will not save you. Trust in the Lord alone. And so by exacting judgment upon the Egyptians, there is a clear indication of who it is that controls and has all power. It is not the Egyptians. It's not their military might. It is God alone. The second reason is that this reference to Cush is likely a reference to the southernmost edge of the known world at that time. Zephaniah is speaking of the judgment of God going as far to the south as it could possibly go. The final reference is to that of Assyria. We see this in verses 13 through 15. Assyria and the Assyrians were known as fearful and ruthless warriors. They committed unimaginable acts of brutality against 
the nations that would stand against them. Unthinkable crimes against humanity. There are some some historians that would even trace the idea of crucifixion to the Assyrians, that the Assyrians were the ones who actually perhaps invented that form of execution. And, And they bragged about this. If you read in the, uh, the writings of these Assyrian emperors and, and these Assyrian kings, they would describe in vivid, gory detail the things they would do to the nations that stood against them. Things I can't even mention here this morning. They would glibly delight in those taunts. In fact, it's no wonder in 2 Kings chapter 19, that when the Assyrians come against King Hezekiah, Hezekiah responds and says, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. And the reference there that he's speaking to is that the absolute terror that the Assyrians would bring upon the nations, and particularly upon Israel. And in fact, there's, we're going to look at this in a little bit. There's an a, um, interaction between Sennacherib's envoy, known as the Rabshakeh, who comes and taunts Israel, not just disparaging Israel as a nation, but in particular speaking against God himself. And so what we see with these nations that are judged The Philistines to the west, Moab and Ammon to the southeast or the east, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north. This north, south, east, and west, God is describing through Zephaniah the entirety of the world. No one will be spared on the day of the Lord. There is no nation, no matter how great or mighty, that will escape God's impending wrath. There is no nation, no matter how how seemingly strong they may be or how seemingly weak they are, that will be able to defy the judgment of God. He begins with the weakest, with the Philistines, and ends with the most fearsome, the Assyrians. And if you think about where Israel is in in this description, they are surrounded by ravenous wolves. There are nations that are wanting to tear at and destroy them all around them. And God comes and says to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, I will judge. I think this is helpful for us to recognize in our day and age because do we not feel as though the church of God is surrounded by enemies on every side? We often think if we were to evaluate the church today, the strength of the church today, we seem like a small nation among great giants. I mean, we, I read articles about this all the time. You can't, you can't pick up a Christian um, periodical or, or pick up or look to a Christian blog that doesn't somewhere discuss the state of the church today. Churches are dwindling and becoming smaller. Society as a whole, uh, even in 
the areas of society that we once counted as our allies now bear no resemblance to that which accords with the truth of God's Word. It seems as though the entire world, no matter where you look at it, whether it be in the, in the business world, whether it be in the political world, whether it be even in the religious world, no matter where we look, it seems that everyone has gone off the deep end. That the world is continuing to go headlong into greater and greater corruption. And we look around, we read the headlines, we see the news uh, reports, and, and we cry out and confess, what can we do? What, where is hope for the church? And God comes to Israel in a similar circumstances and says, I will judge. The day of the Lord is certain, even though... The giants that we seem to face are too big, too numerous, and too well fortified for us. They don't stand a chance against the Lord, the creator of the universe. Everyone who rises against the Lord, everyone will be judged. For him, for his people, these words are words of hope. But for his enemies, they are words of terror. These are the nations that are judged. But what are the terrors that these nations will experience? And again, as as we talked about last week, there is vivid and visceral language that Zephaniah uses, that God uses to describe what he is going to do on his day. And we discussed that God uses this language not to Um, be sensational or not to sort of rise up within us some sort of morbid curiosity about these things, but he does this to shock us into realizing that we must have the right response. What are the terrors that the nations face? Well, it is destruction and desolation. If we look at what is described here about, at verse 4, he starts out right away, Gaza will be deserted, Ashkelon will become a desolation. These terms refer to complete destruction, complete ruin. The Philistines as a people will be destroyed so that no inhabitant, in verse 5 he says, will be left alive. He's going to wipe them from the face of the planet. Moab and Ammon, they will become a land that is ruined, good for nothing. In fact, he compares the end result of what his judgment will be on Moab and Ammon to the results of the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever, he describes. In fact, this is a reminder to us as we looked at when we looked at 2 Peter, that God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to every one of the ungodly. And this is a reminder to us that the Lord knows how both to rescue the godly from trials, and He also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He describes Cush as being slain by his own sword. In Assyria, that great capital, Nineveh, is going to be described as a desert. 
as a place of full desolation. Notice what he says in verse 13. He's going to stretch his hand against the north and he'll destroy Assyria. He'll make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. If you know anything about Nineveh, if you know anything about the history of Nineveh, it was a nation that was, or it was a city that was placed right by the Tigris River. It had many inlets that would feed it. It was known as a lush and flowing land, an abundant land, a land that was, that was overflowing with agricultural health. And God comes and says, I'm going to vacate it so that it becomes a desert. It's actually interesting. He talks about how there will be um, uh, nettles and, and things that will grow there. I'm sorry, that's regarding uh, Ammon. Um, it will be Moab and Ammon will be a land possessed by nettles and salt pits. A nettle is likely referring to um, a bush that has no use whatsoever. It, it provides no nutritional value. It's something that just grows in the desert, and all it does is suck up what little uh, moisture is there and doesn't provide anything to anyone. And in fact, in the 18th century, there's a uh, account of a of a explorer walking through what would have been this land, and he has no, he noted how many of these bushes were around in the area that was Moab and Ammon's area. What we actually find happening in all of these examples is that God takes creation, the world that He created to be a blessing to. His people, to humanity, and creation turns against humanity. Creation will always side with the Creator against those who rise up against Him. So destruction and desolation are what they face. They face displacement. The Philistines, who were never driven from all of the land, they were constantly a problem for Israel and for Judah, will finally be driven out of that land. God will give Judah and the remnant of Judah that as their possession so that they may live there and prosper there. He actually describes how the people will drive out the Philistines uh, by the midday. And it's referring to the idea that this is an easy thing. That it's not going to be any kind of difficulty for there, them to be displaced. He speaks of famine. Again, Moab and Ammon will be reduced to a barren land. There'll be nothing but salty deposits that will kill any crops, that will provide no nutrients. When they go to the water that is there, it will be filled with salt and will provide no sustenance to them. There will be violence done upon them. The overthrow of these nations comes through violent means. They will be conquered. They will be destroyed. And even God's word against Cush, as he says, he will bring his own sword against them and slay them. That which is not taken in the spoils of war will be devoted to destruction. And this echoes Jeremiah's own words in Jeremiah 20, verse 8. Whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. 
But of all the terrors that the nations will face, the greatest terror in this passage is not having their land destroyed and turned into a wasteland. It is not being displaced from the place that they know is home. It's not the famine and it's not even the violence that they will encounter in wars. The greatest terror of this passage is Yahweh Himself. The Lord Himself is the great terror of this passage. It's not the effects of His wrath. It is the one who is bringing that wrath who is feared in this passage. We see, as we see the terror of the Lord described here, His word is against the nations. We see this in verse 5. Verse 5, He says there, Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of Cherahites! The word of the Lord is against you. We see it in verse 9, that this is the declaration of the Lord against these nations. He declares from his mouth their judgment. The scriptures describe God's word and his being as interconnected, as unable to being taken away so that we're going to get to a point where God actually says, as I live, I'm going to put my very nature on the line. This judgment will come. For the judgment to be vacated, God Himself would have to cease to be God. That is the fearsome words of judgment that will come on the day of the Lord. So let's just rewind a little bit to what we looked at in 2 Peter. Remember when 2 Peter writes to his, his, uh, his audience and he says to them, the day of the Lord will come? This is what he's referring to. We, we think of this concept in a, in a sort of abstract idea. Zephaniah makes it real and guttural and terrifying. And this is who God has always been. In Deuteronomy 32, notice what he says, and he's speaking to his people. If they reject the law, the curse will be upon them. And no, notice what he says. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I, Yahweh alone, kills and makes alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. There is no one that can deliver you out of the hand of the Lord. None. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear. Right? I want you to see what God is saying here. This is... This is intense. These words speak of the seriousness of God's wrath. I lift up my hand toward heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemies. 
when, when you read the word of the Lord is against these nations, that should be terrifying. Not only is his word against the nations, but his sword is against the nations. Just as he described in Deuteronomy, God describes himself as a warrior king taking his sword out and being the one who leads these forces to bring about victory over his enemies. In verse 12, as he describes the Cushites, he speaks of them being slain by his own sword. In fact, if we look to the New Testament, when you think about the sword of the Lord, what do you think of? The Word of God. Those two things are intimately connected. Paul says in Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is described in Hebrews as a living and active thing that it is sharper than any sword we can imagine of made of men. That it pierces deep to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You realize that, that it's not going to be just about people who go to church and put on a face and do all the outward stuff. If your heart rises up against the Lord, He will exact vengeance upon you. You cannot hide from His sight, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Everyone is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we all must what? What must we, every one of us do? Give account. And that day of reckoning, John describes in Revelation as this rider on a white horse comes and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And that sword he uses to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then notice again the visceral language. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So God's word is against the nations. His sword is against the nations. And then we see his power is against the nations. Look in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. Now this term has lost a little bit of its impact in our day and age. I, I remember as a kid growing up, I loved Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Cowabunga, dude. All right. You know, I love pizza and stuff like that. And the term awesome, like, oh, that's so awesome. Like, we would talk about that was great or whatever. That is, that, that's so, so very literally, lit, lit, literally, not it, smallly. That's not a word either. Let's just say that it, let's just say tiny. Yes. It is tiny compared to the great idea that Zephaniah is trying to get across. God is awesome. And here it's not viewed as a good thing. It is his awesome power in his judgment. The, the idea is that we would stand with our mouths open, aghast at what God is going to do in his wrath. His power is against those who rise up against Him. That's why we read in Psalm 76, 
You, you are to be feared. It's, it's not just what God does in His wrath. It is His very essence that is fearful. And the psalmist repeats it twice. You, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? These terrors of destruction and displacement and famine and violence, they don't hold a candle to who God Himself is. You realize that it is nothing for God to destroy us all in this moment. It's nothing for Him to do that. You realize that this entire world is being held together by the active work of Christ's almighty word. He holds the universe together by the word of His power. I mean, do you understand the, 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 the power that it takes to continue the, the natural and physical actions that are happening in the universe to continue? Why, why is the world not spinning into the sun? God keeps it there. Why, why does the sun continue to produce the heat of the day? God does that, and He does it by His Word. It's nothing for Him to do that. So who do you think you are that you're going to stand and challenge this great God? This is important for us as His people to remember because at times we can look at the nations around us and we can be fearful of their great wrath and you realize they are nothing. They are less than a drop in the bucket compared to the power of God. In fact, this is exactly what Isaiah tells King Hezekiah, or King Ahaz, I'm sorry. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, so the northern kingdom was coming against the southern kingdom and they were coming in alliance with a great nation, the Syrians. And so the king, seeing this fearful enemy, his heart shook within him. And not just his heart, but he led the people so that all the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I don't know if any of you are hunters. I used to be a hunter. I got tired of getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and sitting in a tree stand all day, freezing to death, and seeing a squirrel scamper by. And I thought, I, I could take the squirrel with my 30-06, but that's probably not the most active, best thing to do. And, and we would sit in tree stands, and, and the wind, especially as a windy day, the wind would blow through the forest, and all the leaves were gone, and you would hear creaking you would hear, you would be sitting on that tree, and, and this is a big tree. I mean, you look at a tree, and you think, oh, this thing is really sturdy, and that wind blows, and you're up there, and that tree starts shifting back and forth. It's a little terrifying. And that's what is described by the threats of the nations and the result that it has among Ahaz and among the people of Judah. And so what does God say? Listen, don't, don't get caught up in all the conspiracies that the people get caught up in. Do not fear what they fear. Look, I think if there's any verse we need in this day and age, it is this one. We live in a Christian church that is chocked full of 
conspiratorial ideas, a fear that is driven by all sorts of strange ideas about what's happening politically or what's happening on the worldwide stage. Listen, is God not still on his throne? So do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And then this is what we should remember. He, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. He is the one you should fear. He is the one you should dread. Jesus himself repeats this. Listen, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I think the greatest fear that humanity faces, the greatest fear that people in the church face is they're afraid of death. And Jesus comes and says, this physical body that you have, don't fear the people that can kill that. Rather, fear him, fear the Lord, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we've seen the terror that these nations face, and the greatest terror is the Lord himself. What is it that causes God to respond in this way? Well, we see, first of all, it is the way that these nations scorn his people. Verse 8, we see in this passage, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revelings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. The Philistines did this by speaking of their mouths, opening their mouths wide against Israel. The Moabites taunted them. God loves His people. He loves them. And we live in a world that is filled with animosity and hatred towards God's people. And listen, it hurts when we hear people disparaging us for the sake of Christ. We should expect it. Our Lord faced this. We're not greater than our master. But nonetheless, we can realize that God does not turn a blind ear or a deaf ear to these things. Notice, He hears the taunts of His people's enemies. These people scorn God and scorn His people because they ultimately reject the Lord Himself. We see this in verse 11 speaks about how the Lord will be awesome against them and he will famish all the gods of the earth. That, that phrase is so interesting. He will famish all the gods of the earth. He will make them lean is what it literally means. So that these gods that these nations look to, anything else that we look to besides the Lord as our great hope, anything else, God is going to show that it's nothing He'll starve these gods so that they can do nothing. And then finally, what, what drives all of these things? What drives people to scorn the people of God? What drives people to reject Yahweh himself? It is our own prideful arrogance. 
We see this in verse 15. As he describes Nineveh, we also see it with the Philistines and the Ammonites, that they are prideful groups. But in particular, as he describes Nineveh, he says this is the exultant city. This is the city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a haughty, prideful thing to say. I am, and there is no one else. Now let's be honest today. I think we maybe wouldn't have the gall to say those words, but it is so easy for us to live that way. I'm the one who's in control of my life. I'm the one who's directing things. I'm the one. It's me, mine, myself, I. And God brings judgment upon those who turn away from Him because of their own prideful arrogance. I'm not going to take the time to put it up there this morning, but in 2 Kings chapter 18, there is a back and forth between the Assyrian Rabshakeh and King Hezekiah. And he goes into and specifically names Yahweh and says, don't let Hezekiah fool you into trusting Yahweh. And then he says, essentially, Yahweh is not as great as the armies of Assyria. Scorn of God's people, rejection of Yahweh through idolatry, prideful arrogance. But then we see in this passage a clear demonstration that Yahweh, our Lord, is vindicated. We see several things here that see this vindication. The first is that the people will possess their land. We see this in verse 7. He says the seacoast, this area of the Philistines that has been a problem for Israel for so long, it's going to become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. And this area that was once a bustling metropolis will become um, fields and pastures so that the shepherds will be able to graze there. They'll lie down at evening. And this is why this is happening. The Lord, their God, is mindful of them and restores their fortunes. Yahweh will restore the promises that He makes to His people. Let it not ever be questioned. Does God keep His promises? Yes. Not only does He give back the land that is deserved to them, but He will plunder the riches of these nations. Verse 9, we see that they will possess all the things that these nations have, the remnant of His people will possess those things. That God's own people will now prosper. Instead of hiding and being fearful of these other nations around them, when Yahweh moves on His day, there will be a clear indication that His people will prosper. There will be agricultural prosperity. Verses 6 and 7 they will graze there. There will be meadows and for the shepherds and folds for the flocks. There'll be peace. 
talks about how they will lie down at evening. And, and the indication there is there's no longer a threat of nations coming in and harassing or bringing judgment against them or, or, or fighting wars against them. They'll sleep like babies. They'll sleep in security. And again, this prosperity comes because Yahweh is mindful or considerate or visits His people. And I think it's important for us to recognize that true prosperity is not found in the things that God gives us, but it is found in God Himself. The richest man on the face of this planet is one who has the Lord as his God. And there is a great vindication seen in all of these things, but the greatest vindication that we see that God brings about in His judgment on the nations is seen in verse 11. Where we see God's awesome power contrasted with the greatest thing He does to vindicate Himself. And that is that people will come, His people will come from the nations. Look at what He says here. The Lord will be awesome against them. He'll famish all the gods of the earth. And to Him shall bow down each in its place. How many? How many? All the lands of the nations. The text of verse 11 uses universal language to describe how God uses His judgment to convert the nations. As he famishes all the gods of the earth, it is an indication that no matter where you are, no matter what you worship, there will be a day on this day where God will demonstrate to you that what you've been trusting in is empty. It's useless. This great God will be shown to be awesome against all the things that man seek to worship. And then he speaks of how these worshipers that will come and bow down. I don't believe, particularly considering the context when we come to verse, chapter 3, verse 9, I don't believe this is bowing down in conquest, but it is a willing bowing of the knee to the Lord from everyone, from all the lands of the nations. He will take everyone. And the term lands that's used there in the original actually refers to literally a coast or a sea coast. And when that term is used in the Old Testament, it refers to the farthest reaches of the earth. It's actually only used here and in one other place in Genesis 10.5 where it describes the dispersion of people after the flood. So in using and invoking that term here in um, Zephaniah chapter 11, there is a worldwide view that Zephaniah has. By bringing desolation and destruction upon his enemies, 
God does something that brings about this conversion. He demonstrates that he is the one true God. No God is awesome but our God. He demonstrates that other gods are empty and useless. Then we see that in the midst of such terror, we have a God who is merciful and gracious. When he refers to all the lands of the nations, it includes places like Moab and Ammon, the Philistines, the Cushites, even the sinfully wretched and wicked Ninevites. They will one day come and bow before him willingly. God will, by his grace, turn people from their dependence on anything else. And there will be people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation that say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. There's the clearest vindication of Yahweh's power is in the conversion of those who hated him, those who were rebels, to being his loving subjects. That means that anytime, anytime someone comes to faith in Christ, anytime someone turns away from their dependence on themselves, or their dependence on idols, or their dependence on their works, or their dependence on anything but Yahweh, every time that happens, when we rejoice in that, it is a demonstration that our God is awesome. This is why Jesus says that when one soul comes to faith, there is rejoicing in heaven among the angels of God. His power is displayed in the conversion of the nations. So how are we to react to all of this? Well, first of all, if you're here today and you in any way, shape, or form find yourself being a part of these nations that continue to persist in rebellion against the Lord, you have been warned. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come with a fierceness and a destruction that is unthinkable. There will be no effort by men. There will be no place to run to. There will be no place to hide. There will be nothing that even the greatest minds of this world, if they were to come together and forge some strategy to fight against the Lord, it would be useless. And so if that's you today, the message of Zephaniah is come willingly. Remember what we looked at last week in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Turn from your pride. Humble yourself and come to Christ and find in Him a Savior who will save to the uttermost all who come to God through Him. But if you persist, if you reject, you've been warned. The day of the Lord will come. And in that day, God will be awesome against you. Not awesome in your conversion, but awesome in your judgment. 
But if we do know the Lord as our Savior, if we have come to Him and we find Him to be a Savior that saves completely, we still recognize that we languish by the nations around us. Let this encourage you. God hears the taunts of your enemies. God will visit justice upon the world that cries out against you. There's this amazing scene in Revelation chapter 6 where there's this vision of the saints that have been martyred for the testimony of the Lord. And they're underneath the, the, um, they're underneath the, the altar in heaven. And, and they're there and they're safe, but they're crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long... Before you do this, what we read here, how long will it be? How long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the response of our Lord is loving. He gives them a white robe. He tells them to rest. Hallelujah, there is an eternal rest for God's people. And then he says... There are more to enter the kingdom. There are more to die for the sake of my name and my testimony as you have been. It is amazing to see here that God withholds his judgment because he still has people to save. That's exactly what Peter reminded us of. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some people count that slowness, but He's long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any of His people should perish, but that how many will reap repentance? All! And there is a wonderful hope to see when God turns His enemies into His followers. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is recounting his testimony. And we know he's on the road to Damascus and he sees the light from heaven shine down and he falls to the ground. He says, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Here is Saul, and he has reached the pinnacle of Jewish society. He is a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is respected, and not only that, he has authority to hunt down those nasty Christians, to throw them in jail. He thinks he's all that and a bag of matzah bread. And he encounters the one living God who was awesome on the road to Damascus. And God comes to him and he's like, what are you doing? Don't you realize the folly of what you're doing? That's why Psalm 2 talks about why are the heathen raging? It's not asking what, what's motivating them. It's like, it's stupid. Then he comes and says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Is it, you're, it, what's it like to be on the other end of this, Paul, or Saul? And so Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I mean, think for a second at that moment. Here is the Lord of the universe demonstrated his substantial power over Saul. And he's like, and, and you're doing this to me. At that moment, 
Saul should be absolutely terrified. But then notice what God does to demonstrate his power. He doesn't consume Paul or Saul in a glorious blaze of fire. He doesn't hail down brimstone. He doesn't afflict him in a torturous way. Notice what he says. But rise and stand to your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a what? A servant. And a witness to those things in which you have seen me and to those in which I, have, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is one of the most clearest demonstration of God's power in the Bible. Where he takes the chief of sinners and turns him into his servant. This is why Paul begins Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is what? Power. It's the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so here we are, we're beginning the holiday season. If you were coming here today thinking that you're going to hear a nice Christmas message, we'll get one, but we still got a lot more to cover in Zephaniah. But I, I would say to you that this message is exceedingly necessary as we consider the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to earth. Isaiah chapter 9, there's this statement, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And Isaiah will go on in chapter 9 to say, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What we read today in Zephaniah doesn't seem very peaceful, but yet when we remember the coming of Christ to earth, it is a time for peace. Peace for all who trust in Him. And so we must never forget that our Savior has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God will judge the nations. He will demonstrate His great power on that day. But that power is most clearly seen when His enemies become His people. By the grace He gives us in Christ alone. Wrath and joy, right? And all of this brought about through what our Lord has done.